but the form, the way in which that content is given to us, because I think the form also has an effect upon our lives. Um, as a, a secular example of this, I was talking with a friend of mine who uh, lives up in Chicago, and uh, there was a uh, carjacking or uh, stealing of a car in a garage in his condo complex. And it's a locked garage, and he was talking to me about, you know, trying to figure out who did this. And he's kind of going down certain paths, and he'd reach a dead end, and then he'd go back to the beginning and say, well, you know, I mean, only so many have a key, and it's this time of day. And he kept just kind of circling around and around. And at one point, he stopped his conversation, and he said, I feel like it's a true crime mystery. <laughs> and for those of you who have listened to podcasts on true crime or watched televised series on true crime, you notice how they, they kind of keep looking at evidence and going down one path, coming back and looking at evidence in a new way and going down one path. And so he felt like his daily life was becoming a true crime podcast. And it's, um, you know, it's kind of a warning, be careful what you watch, right? If you watch too many romance movies, you think you're gonna go into a coffee shop and meet the person of your dreams, right? If you watch too many adventure stories, are too many, uh, I mean, even, even like when I was a kid and we'd go to uh, watch a movie and there's a lot of car races in the movie, I was always frightened to get into the parking lot and drive. <laughs> so I'm like, there's people who are gonna think they're in the car race. So the literary form can shape how we view the world and it's true with scripture also. We have literary forms in scripture like Proverbs, very clear statements of teaching that invite us to meditate on them and to apply them to our lives. And then we have parables, which are very unclear scriptural teachings that lead us into a whole different way of, um, of living. And so in our text on the passion of Jesus, the one literary quality that I think Luke demonstrates throughout the reading is irony, dramatic irony. Dramatic irony happens when the reader knows more than the people in the story. So there's a, a, an issue of knowledge the reader knows more than the people in the story. And because you, as a reader, know more than the people in the story, you look at them differently than they look at themselves or other people in the story look at them. Um, I guess an example of that, I mean, sometimes it's a good thing. Uh, you have the story of the... Um, Abraham's being tested by God with the sacrifice of Isaac, right? And in the very first line, when that account is going to be given to us, we're told God tested Abraham. And then God speaks to Abraham and says, sacrifice your son. Now, Abraham doesn't know that God's testing him. We know God's testing him because the writer has informed us of that knowledge. So we have the, the advantage of sitting in a position knowing 
that God is testing Abraham and watching as this individual who has no clue he's being tested is receiving a word from God that seems to contradict everything God has said in Scripture. Kill your son. Thou shalt not kill. Why am I being commanded to kill myself? I mean, he seems to be receiving a word that is against everything that God has said. Taking a child of the promise, offering this child of the promise and a sacrifice to God. And we watch as Abraham faithfully, faithfully responds to God's command. And it teaches us that sometimes, sometimes in our life, the commands of God seem nonsensical. <laughs> Love your enemies. Right? And then you, you, be, you end up in a situation where you have enemies that you, you think that it is impossible to love such people. And yet, yet, you're faithful to the commands of God, even in the midst of trial. So sometimes it's a good thing. We can see things about characters that we emulate and we, we want to emulate. We want to do it in our own lives. Sometimes it's a negative thing. You've got that story where um, Mary anoints Jesus with the oil and it's an expensive oil, it, it's a year's worth of year's wages, and you as the reader are informed that Judas is the treasurer, Judas is going to betray Jesus, and Judas is a thief. So you know all of this about Judas. The disciples don't know this, but you know this. And Judas then says, why this waste? This oil could have been sold and, and given to the poor. Now, to the disciples, this sounds like a very pious statement. They would make gifts to the poor during Passover, and Judas now is showing his deep concern for the poor and his, his desire for stewardship of gifts, and let's save the money and give it to the poor. But you as a reader know that it's all a sham, that Judas is, is posturing himself as some wonderful disciple when in fact, in fact, he's filled with hatred and sin. And it teaches us sometimes to listen more carefully as people talk because we wonder, it sounds pious, it sounds good, but is that really the way you're living, right? So sometimes irony helps us see good qualities in people. Sometimes irony helps us see bad qualities in people. And finally, sometimes irony helps us look at God. So remember that story where there's the rich young ruler, Jesus comes to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler is like, how do I inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, you know, says, obey the commandments, and he lists all the commandments, and he says, I've kept them. And then Jesus, we're told, loved him. <laughs> Jesus loved him and said, give up all you have and come follow me. The words of Jesus seem harsh and strong, and difficult for a rich young ruler to give up everything. But we as a reader know that those words are coming from love. And so sometimes as we read God's word and we see that difference between what is known by the characters and what is known by us and how people behave, it, it teaches us about people and it teaches us about God. And ultimately what it teaches us is what we learn in, in Isaiah 55, right? That, um, we come to the Lord, we draw near to the Lord while he is near, he's close to us, he's near, but his thoughts are beyond our thoughts and his ways are beyond our ways. And so we're always involved in this tension in life where we know some things, but we don't know everything. We know some things, but we don't know everything. And the life of faith is holding on to what you know 
in the midst of everything else that you don't know. So with that said, we're going to be looking for irony as we read this passage through uh, Luke, the, the passion of Jesus, because Luke just fills this whole story with irony as we know more than the people happening in the story. Any comments or questions on the idea of literary form affecting the way we, affecting the way we live and the certain knowledge giving us strength and ability to endure times when everything is beyond our understanding. Any comments, thoughts on that? You know, there's that recent, uh, there's like this recent Christian music song about heaven changes everything, right? And that's, that's a good example of it, right? You have this piece of knowledge about what will happen in the end, and because you know the ending, the rest of your life is different. The rest of your life is different because you know how it's going to end. We're fortunate that we know this. People in the, in the Bible had no idea. That's right. That's the whole point. And that's why, as a reader, there's this irony that happens, is that you're, you know the fuller story and they don't. But there's a lot you still don't know. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that listening or listening in or observing how these people in Scripture acted in a kingdom that they didn't know everything helps us in our daily life know how to act in a kingdom where we don't know everything. But we do know some things, and so things that we know are very important. So, um, to set up the context for Luke 23, I believe you stopped at verse 6, um, when Pilate sends Jesus over to uh, Herod. Um, I'd like to set up what you as a reader know and what the disciples should know but is completely, they're completely clueless about, and that is the passion prediction. So if you could look at Luke chapter 9, verse 22. We're going to look at three passion predictions. Jesus has predicted his passion three times. The first time in Luke is Luke 9, verse 22, Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ of God, and in verse 21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So this is the first passion prediction. Notice how the passion prediction is focused on the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, that they are the ones who will reject him, the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Second passion prediction is still in chapter 9, verse 44. Jesus says to the disciples, listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. So this time, we hear a little bit more about how Jesus is going to end up in a situation where he suffers. He's going to be betrayed. So he's going to be betrayed, but it's just into the hands of men. It's not necessarily into the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. So the second passion prediction is much more general. Uh, it tells you how it's going to happen. He's going to be betrayed, and he's going to fall into the hands of men. And then finally, the third passion prediction, which is actually the most important for this particular text, is from chapter 18. Luke 18, 
31 through 33. Luke 18, 31 through 33. Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Notice in this passion prediction how we don't have reference to the religious leaders of Israel, right? That, that's not referenced at all. We have a much longer description of the suffering, right? So we've got mocking, we've got spitting, um, we've got insulting and flogging, and instead of the Jewish leaders, we have the Gentile leaders, right? And so it's kind of, you've got three passion predictions, and they're, they're all looking at the same event from different perspectives, right? On the one perspective, you see this as a rejection by the Israel, by Israel's religious leaders of Jesus. On another perspective, you see the more general betrayal of Jesus, which means that this might relate somehow to the disciples because you're, you can only betray somebody who, who has trusted himself to you, right? So there's a betrayal and there's gonna be suffering. And then the third one takes us into the world of the Gentiles and we see this mocking and spitting and abusing of Jesus and, um, and his being handed over to them. Now, the, the response to all of these is actually the same in verse 34 the disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. So the disciples have no clue what's happening. We as the reader, however, do know that scripture is going to be fulfilled, Jesus is going to suffer, he's gonna be betrayed, the suffering will involve rejection by the Jewish leaders and it will also involve mocking by the Gentile leaders. And so armed with that knowledge, we're now going to watch as things play out just like Jesus said, but not necessarily the way we would expect. So chapter 23, we have uh, Jesus being brought to Pilate with three charges. Uh, these are in verse two. He subverts the nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He claims to be Christ. Uh, we know that the paying of taxes to Caesar is a lie because we have heard Jesus himself in the temple affirm how he would handle the issue of paying taxes. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God. So we, we realize now that this is a lie, but he's accused of three things, um, misleading the people or subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes, claiming to be the Christ. And Pilate, finds no charge against him in verse four, and they, the religious leaders now, insist that he is subverting the people with his teaching starting in Galilee. And at this point, Pilate sees an out. The, um, the, a person could be tried on the basis of the place of their offense. And so if Jesus was causing offense in Jerusalem, in Judea, he could be tried under Pilate. They also could be tried in the place of their residence. 
And if Jesus is known as a Galilean, he could also be tried in Galilee. And so Pilate finds this um, opportunity to push Jesus over to Herod, who happens to be in Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And this is actually pretty surprising for us because Pilate was somewhat of a violent ruler. Um, you know, he's, uh, he was um, brought to his position by the intercession of a friend who was a legislature in Rome, uh, a chief administrator, Sejanus, and uh, Pilate began his time in Jerusalem with trouble. He brought in images of Caesar, and the Jews kind of freaked out about that. It showed disrespect for the Jews. The other governors had not done that. He, um, he at one point uh, took money from the treasury to support the building of an aqueduct. So he took the sacred money, used it to build an aqueduct, and when people were resisting him, he sent soldiers uh, in disguise into the crowd to kill the people. Um, we are told, it's not recognized in secular history, but scripture tells us that there was some incident where he mingled the blood of Galileans with their sacrifice. So Galileans who had come to Jerusalem to sacrifice were killed at the same time. And his very last act was an act of violence. Um, uh, there were Samaritans who were on Mount Gerizim who were digging for some sacred vessels that, you know, a person had uh, misled them to believe were buried there, and Pilate slaughtered them, and that kind of created cries for his removal. So Pilate is, is not a person who's squeamish about doing something wrong, and it would not be odd for Pilate to kill an innocent person. And what is so surprising, what is so surprising is that the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, whom we would expect would just get rid of this, but instead, Pilate tries to find an out. And so he um, hands Jesus over to Herod. So here is where we uh, pick up in verse six through seven. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at this time. Now verse eight, when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. So this is um, Herod Antipas. And if you go back in Luke 9, chapter, verse 9, we hear of Herod's desire to see Jesus in Luke 9, verse 9. This is right before the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus has sent out his 12 in mission. Um, they're doing all these wonderful things as they move from village to village. And in verse 7, now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So there's a strange mixture uh, going on in Herod. Herod has killed somebody that everybody believed was a prophet. 
right? And um, Herod has demonstrated some favorableness to the Jewish people. He's kind of descended from Edomites who were converted to Judaism. So there's, you know, he's kind of Jewish, but he's not Jewish. It's kind of a, a very awkward situation for him. And he's never Jewish enough, and yet he does have sympathy toward the Jewish people. So he wouldn't have wanted to kill a prophet, and we realize that the killing of, beheading of John the Baptist was kind of not Herod's plan. It was his response to a situation that had been orchestrated by his wife. So um, Herod is frightened, partly, that maybe John the Baptist has risen from the dead, or he's wondering if this is probably a prophet and he's desiring to see signs. Now, when we hear this, he desires to see signs. Sometimes for us, that's like a, um, you know, just a theology of glory. I'd like to see you do a few miracles, prove to me that you're God if I see a few miracles. I think there's a little bit more going on with this. Um, Moses had promised the Israelites that there would be a prophet raised up greater than him. So the Israelites were longing for a prophet greater than Moses. And Moses was known as a prophet by doing signs and wonders. That's what they're called, signs and wonders. And so when you read through the Old Testament, they'll often talk about signs and wonders. And whenever they're talking about signs and wonders, they're usually referring to the plagues uh, when Moses went into Egypt to release the children of Israel, these were the signs and wonders that he did. He spoke and these things happened. And the first signs and wonders he did, you remember the Egyptian magicians could duplicate them. And so there was kind of this dueling war between the gods of Egypt and Moses, the god of Yahweh, uh, because they both did signs and wonders. But then by the fourth plague, uh, Moses does something that the Egyptians can't duplicate. And then they say, this is the finger of God, right? This is the finger of God. And so these signs and wonders serve to authenticate a prophet. And so the desire to see a prophet do signs and wonders is partly a desire for authentication, that this is indeed a prophet. But it's not just signs and wonders. It's going to have to be signs and wonders that are greater than the signs and wonders of Moses. So you remember in the Gospel of John when Jesus feeds the 5,000, which to us is a sign and wonder, <laughs> and the Jewish leaders respond by saying, Moses fed Israel 40 years in the desert, right? Feeding 5,000 people once, that's not greater than feeding Israel for 40 years in the desert. So Jesus did what to us is a great sign and wonder to the Jewish leaders, like, well, it's, you know, it's a good start, right? And that's, and that's when Jesus then, you know, Jesus then says to them, you know, you know, you want signs and wonders, eat my body, drink my blood, right? So you get this real, this sharp response of Jesus back to them. So, so Herod's desire to see signs and wonders may be related to more than just a theology of glory. It may be related to a desire to authenticate that Jesus himself was a prophet. Because if he can do that, if he can do that, he, he has a reason for letting Jesus go, right? He's not going to be a king that killed two prophets. <laughs> he already killed one prophet. 
If he can authenticate that Jesus is indeed a prophet, then he can release him on that basis. It'll please the people, but it will not please the uh, elders and scribes and rulers of the law who are bringing, bringing him to Jesus. So Herod wants to see this um, sign and wonder. And, you know, in the background, there's this... Um, this question of why would Herod want to know that Jesus is a prophet? I mean, we've got the story of Herod's father desiring to kill Jesus to preserve his throne, right? And so there's that, that kind of recent memory that's still hanging around. And you see this in Luke 13, 31 through 35, where Herod and Jesus um, are again brought up in conversation. So Luke 13, 31 through 35, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, we don't know that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. That's not recorded anywhere. We don't know really what's going on in Herod's mind, but the Pharisees could use the history of Herod's father the killing of John the baptizer, Jesus claiming to be a prophet to make it sound like Jesus might be, uh, Herod might be desiring to kill you. And Jesus shows no fear at all. He replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. That's what we call verbal irony. <laughs> Jesus, because we would expect Jerusalem to be the place where the prophets survive, right? I mean, Jerusalem is the place where God has made his name to dwell, where God calls his people together. What would be a better place to be a prophet than in Jerusalem? And outside of Jerusalem, you could probably be killed for being a prophet, but inside Jerusalem, no way at all. But Jesus kind of turns this ironically and says, you know, I don't have to worry about Herod. I don't have to worry about being killed in Galilee because the only place a prophet's really going to die, well, that would be in Jerusalem. It would be like saying, you know, the only place, you know, I don't have to worry about people mistreating me or hurting me are shaming me when I'm working out in the world, because the only place where you're really mistreated and really hurt and really shamed is St. Paul de Pere. Right? I mean, that's what's happening, right? It's a really sharp statement that's causing you to think Jerusalem would be the place where he would be killed? How would Jerusalem kill a prophet, right? And so Jesus has this confidence. So he's not scared of Herod. Um, so the two citations we have in Luke about Herod and Jesus, one of them, Herod seems to be um, interested in seeing Jesus to discern whether or not he's a prophet. The other one, we have a report from the Pharisees that the, Herod's trying to kill him, in which case this would be an opportunity for Herod to do that. Obviously, Herod is not trying to kill Jesus because he could have made that judgment. Instead, he's trying to figure out if Jesus is a prophet. So let's see what happens when he tries to figure out. So he, verse 9 of chapter 23, verse 9, he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. 
The chief priest and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. So this is where the irony occurs. For us who have heard the passion prediction, who know what the Gentiles are going to do, we suddenly see it happening. Herod is mocking Jesus. Herod is dressing him in an elegant robe, probably a robe to signify royalty, and if this is a king, if this is a Christ, let's put him this way. Um, now, the interesting thing is, is this, um, this mocking is really a really shrewd political move on the part of Herod because he has discerned that Jesus is not a prophet. Okay, so I can't let Jesus off because he's a prophet, because he's, he hasn't performed any miraculous signs and wonders. So, so now Herod's stuck with, what do I do with someone who claims to be a prophet and could be misleading the people? The charge would be to kill him. That's what the Jewish leaders are asking him to do, but Herod doesn't want to kill him. So what Herod does is Herod makes fun of him. He makes fun of him for trying to be a Christ or a king. And this is his out. He's not threatened by Jesus. And he doesn't need to kill Jesus to preserve his station or preserve Rome. This is just all silly. And so he just mocks Jesus as a way of dismissing him. Right? So we've got this, um, this scene where Herod is mocking Jesus as a way of preserving his life. Because, you know, you don't need to be threatened by Jesus who's misleading the people or not paying taxes to Caesar or claiming to be a king. Don't be threatened by him. This is just silly. You know, look at him. He's a king. And let's spit on him. Let's mock him. And, and now we can set him free. Now, what's, what's lovely about the irony here is Herod wanted to know if Jesus is a prophet. How do you know if someone is a prophet? They're, what? Signs and wonders, and what else? What else do prophets do? They preach, and what they preach comes true. Jesus has said, I will be mocked by Gentiles. It's coming true. So Herod has all the evidence in the world that Jesus is a prophet, because what Jesus said he would do, he's doing. <laughs> Herod wanted signs and wonders, but what he has is actually... He himself is fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus. And so the, the divine irony here is that Herod does not know he's fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus and showing that Jesus truly is a prophet. So while Herod is trying to save Jesus and dismiss him as somebody not to be concerned about, the reader is seeing this Jesus better be concerned about because he is a prophet. And what he says comes true. And the very thing that's happening with him and Herod is evidence to us as a reader that Jesus knows what is going to happen and has told us what is going to happen and not just his prophecy about his death, but everything else he has said is something that is true and something that we should probably, probably listen to. And so... Um, <clears throat> 
This then uh, ends the section with Herod, verse 12. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. And so, the, the, again, irony here, right? The death of Jesus does what? It reconciles us to God. We now become friends of Jesus and friends of God. And the death of Jesus brings about reconciliation for sinners with God. And here, the exoneration of Jesus, the passing of Jesus, mocking of Jesus, becomes something that brings friends on a horizontal level between political leaders. And we say to ourselves, wouldn't it be more beautiful if these political leaders had friendship with God because of what's happening with Jesus. And so there's this uh, irony that's happening at this moment in terms of what the death of Jesus actually does. It does bring friendship, but a greater friendship than between two lackluster political rulers who didn't like each other before. So that's um, the first part of uh, the interaction between Herod and Jesus. Any questions or comments? Isn't there a... uh... Uh, kind of a illustration that Jesus was also kind of a hot potato for these uh, for these leaders. Right. Yeah. The, um, the 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 question is not one that can be dismissed without consequences. Right. Um, there's uh, right. The crowd is desirous of of Jesus of something happening with Jesus, and it's not just the crowd; it's the rulers, the religious leaders in Jerusalem who are calling for something to happen. And the relationship of these rulers to the people and the ability to keep peace among the people is at stake. And so there's some personal consequence that could happen to their actions, right? I think that as we, getting back to Pilate, he had been violent, but he actually had made bad decisions and he actually was on thin ice. And he, the emperor wanted him to keep peace in Israel, in, in this out, outlying area, and he wasn't doing it. He, and he had, made, he had made bad choices uh, over and over again, and he was on thin ice because he not only could be recalled, he, his own life could be at stake. So that's why I think he was nervous about Jesus. Well, I would agree with you. Yeah, there was personal stake there to, to what he's doing and how it might be read and how it could be used against him, right? I mean, the religious leaders are coming to him, but they might go beyond him, right? And then, you know, who's going who's gonna to help you then? Yeah. We also see that um, even after this in the letters that we read after the Gospels, that, you know, it is ongoing that people will join they will align themselves with people who agree with them. If you want to be against God, you can find plenty of friends who are, who are. but also in one of the gospels, I'm not sure that I remember which one, one of the most dramatic, ironic statements was, uh, may his blood be upon our heads. I can't remember what, which, where that was, but. Yeah, that's, yeah, the irony of, of the, you know, it's better that one man die for the nation then that the whole nation be destroyed. That's an, an ironic statement. Uh, May his blood be upon our heads. That's another ironic statement. You're going to find this irony usually in the passion narrative. Um, just because, be, and, and the big thing to remember is that God has a plan. 
that this isn't just something that, you know, happened because of strange circumstances and it just is, you know, unfolding in a, in a way that nobody could have predicted. There was a plan from God and Jesus has already announced it. And you as a reader are watching as the world seems to be falling apart. Um, you know, the religious leaders are against Jesus. You've got Pilate who has been violent, who's being kind. You've got Herod passing Jesus along, but not claiming he's a prophet, but mocking him. And, and none of this makes any sense to you as a reader, but to you as a believer, you're seeing the very thing God said would happen, happen. And so it's kind of, it puts you in that tension of holding on to what you know, what God has said would happen, even as you're experiencing what is a very strange and foreign world to you. Yeah. Any other questions, thoughts, observations? Okay, well, let's uh, look at what happens now with Pilate when he receives Jesus back. Uh, verse 13, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. Now notice how there were three charges, that Jesus was misleading the people, that he was refusing to uh, have people pay taxes and that he was claiming to be the Christ a king and so Pilate is really picking up on that first of the three charges that he is misleading the people into rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod for he sent him back to us as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death and if, if, um, if Jesus was still dressed in this elegant robe uh, that was kind of a, a piece of mockery. That statement, you know, as you can see, is an interesting statement, right? That, that they visibly could actually see this Jesus looking uh, like a puppet, like somebody who couldn't accomplish anything, uh, is the, the vilified and mocked by Herod. And so uh, Pilate holds on to, um, holds on to, Herod's judgment and his own judgment and uses both of those reasons, uh, these two witnesses that Jesus is innocent and therefore he will release him. The response, however, is with one voice they cried out, away with this man, release Bar-Habbas to us. Bar-Habbas, the son of the father, had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So here again is irony right? The, uh, the Jewish leaders are bringing Jesus to Pilate to get rid of Jesus because Jesus is causing an insurrection. And then they're saying, give us somebody who was causing an insurrection, right? So, so the irony of, you know, you see the falsehood of their claims, that they, 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 they're trying to have Jesus crucified for causing an insurrection, and they're willing to trade out Jesus for somebody who has been convicted of trying to cause an insurrection and commit murder. So they really don't care about there being an insurrection. That is not a problem for them. What they want is they want Jesus dead. Wanting to release Jesus, this is verse 20, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, 
but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And so here, Pilate now hears the type of death that they desire. And there's so much written on crucifixion and who would be crucified, who could be crucified. I'm sure you've covered this before, but this is a very violent, dehumanizing death that is reserved for the worst, right? A Roman citizen could not be crucified. And so the, um, so they're calling for a very, very harsh form of punishment of Jesus. And Pilate responds, for the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, <laughs> reminding you of that, and surrendered Jesus to their will. So the way that last statement, surrendered Jesus to their will, this whole last scene with Pilate has been showing us a contrast between the will of the elders, the chief priests, and the rulers of Israel and Pilate, the Gentile government, a contrast of wills. And their will is to kill Jesus. And what I find so interesting is that this interaction with Pilate and the people is divided into three scenes, right? So first, Pilate brings them out and says, I find no charge. And they then say that they, um, he's going to punish and release him. And they say, no, release Barabbas. Then Pilate says um, he's, he uh, wants to release Jesus. They then cry out, crucify him. And then for the third time, right, verse 22, for the third time, he says, why? And they demand it, and he turns to their will. Where else have we seen somebody involved three times in their relationship with Jesus. Peter, right? So this is uh, just a few moments before we had the account of Peter. Three times Peter is being questioned, do you know this man? And three times Peter denies it. And so we, we see how among the disciples, <laughs> the will for self-preservation is such that Peter denies his Lord. Now we turn to Pontius Pilate, and now we're seeing the religious leaders, and we're seeing how strong their will is to kill Jesus, right? So three times they're coming against Pilate, and three times they are insistent that Jesus be crucified. And so you have this um, if you think of the way Luke has told the account, he, he has uh, kind of the disciples early on abandoning Jesus. And the big figure of that is Peter, who three times denies Jesus. And now, right before Pilate releases Jesus for crucifixion, he shows us another set of three examples of the will of the leaders fighting against the Gentiles who are trying to release Jesus, but they're so intent on killing Jesus that that threefold opportunity is um, is to bring, to bring about his death. And so uh, just the irony here, you know, um, the Jews who had been 
concerned about Roman be, Rome being a, a, a power that oppresses the people are using Rome to oppress Jesus and to kill him. So they're, you know, quite happy to, to allow Rome to have power to crucify uh, Jesus. So, that, so that, that's the irony there. The irony that Pilate, who is a figure who should be, uh, who God has established to do justice, is actually doing injustice. And perhaps for self-motivation, he's trying to preserve his own role and preserve the peace so that he can continue to serve. And so just like Peter was self-preservation, Pilate is doing self-preservation. And all of these conflicted, strange motivations are actually bringing about the fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus. And so we've got this hidden world where we're watching motivations that seem strange and odd and all of this stuff is playing out and we don't know what's happening. And then we have the divine world where God has already told us this will happen, and so it's playing out in our eyes. Yep, questions, comments? Is there any insight into why the Jewish leaders wanted crucifixion as a means of uh, killing Jesus? That I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we have that language of, you know, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, but I don't know if they would have thought that deeply about, you know, I mean, it, it would be a way of making sure that no one would follow this guy, right? Because it is so dehumanizing and shameful that it would cut apart, you know, anything that you would have thought that, you know, you would not follow a crucified Lord. There, there just is no such thing. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure about that. That's a good question, a good question. Uh, it doesn't say it here, but it seems to me in one of the other accounts, I thought that Barabbas was suggested to them. They didn't come up with Barabbas's name on their own. That Pilate suggested it, thinking he's so bad, they'll rather release Jesus than Barabbas because his reputation was so bad. So it was a last ditch effort on Pilate's part to release Jesus, right? Yeah, I mean, there was the, uh, I think that's in the Gospel of Mark that you're, you're thinking about in terms of the reference to Barabbas. Um, and so that's, uh, and it's the chief priest. So Mark 15, verse 11. Uh, so Pilate is talking to the Jews, and in verse 9 he says, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Verse 10, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest handed Jesus over to him. Then verse 11, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And so, uh, yeah, it was not, you know, there's a... Um, there's, uh, negotiation going on in the background that Luke isn't sharing those details with us, but that is... Uh, in the earlier, the earlier right, it's just in, in Mark, I mean the verse I read suggests that the chief priest brought the name of Bar Habas, right? So in verse... Right. Yeah, they, they wanted Pilate to, um, you know, Pilate normally released a prisoner at Passover, and they wanted him to release a, a prisoner. But at that crucial moment, um, when, they, uh, 
the, the, the issue is that um, the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. And so it's an activity of the chief priest stirring up the crowd. Matthew 27, 17 is Pilate suggests. Pilate suggests Barabbas. Okay, good, good. So this is a fun thing about having all these different accounts, right? So the, the writers are offering you the same story, but they're looking at different details. And with Luke, the, um, the details Luke offers us are really focused on the irony of what is happening. That, um, you know, those who are seeking, Herod who wants to see a prophet actually fulfills the prophet's prophecy by mocking him. <laughs> and Pilate who wants to do justice actually does injustice by listening to the will of the people. The people who want to be free from the oppression of Rome actually use the oppression of Rome to kill Jesus. I mean, again and again and again, we see, and there's a proverb like this called, man, dispo man proposes, God disposes, right? That, that we can come up with our own way that we want things to be, but God is ruling over all and doing what God desires. And I guess the question is, why would this matter to us as contemporary readers? Why should we be aware of this irony? And here would be my um, answer to that. If you'll look at Luke 21, starting at verse 10. Uh, this is Jesus talking about the signs of the end of the age. Um, then he said to them, his disciples, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Standing firm, you will gain your life. So this Jesus, who has prophesied his own crucifixion and resurrection, has also prophesied the sufferings and persecutions that his followers will experience and along with prophesying the sufferings and persecutions that we will experience, Jesus has promised, has promised that we don't need to worry about it. Eek, the word we speak will be persuasive and not a hair of our head will perish eternally, right? So in some ways, this sense of disorientation in all of the things that are falling apart as religious leaders are trying to crucify the one God has sent them as the Gentiles are trying to free him, but they're caught in traps that cause them to crucify him. In all of that disorientation, there's this knowledge that God is at work. And the same is true for our lives today. Um, I know people, a lot of people who say that it seems like the world is falling apart. 
It's just falling apart. And Christians are wondering, what do we do? What do we do? Do we, do we, do we gather together and hide in some type of enclave that protects ourselves? No, we don't need to protect ourselves. We've been told by Jesus that this is going to happen. This shouldn't come as shocking to us. We've been told it's going to happen. And what else have we been told? Not a hair of your head will perish. Don't worry about it. I'll give you what to say, right? So, so this training in the irony of watching a world fall apart as justice is not done by the people of doing justice and as religious leaders are making mistakes when they should be leading the people, watching all of that fall apart and knowing that God is in control, the same thing applies to us as we enter into the world that seems to be falling apart. And yet we have the words of Jesus, a prophet, that he is in control. And you see a small glimpse, a really small glimpse of this in the book of Acts. And that's where I'll end today in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, James and, uh, Peter and John have um, performed some signs and wonders and they have been taken into prison, and now they are about to be released. They are released, and when they're released, listen to what happens on verse 23 of chapter four. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, and now they quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice what they've done. They've listened to the prophecy of Jesus. They've looked at Psalm 2 and they said, what happened in Jerusalem with the crucifixion of Jesus, it was a mess. And it was exactly what Psalm 2 was saying, the nations are gonna be turned against Christ, but God is in control. This was God's predetermined plan, and this God will preserve us, and let's go out and speak the word. And it's just a, I think it's just a beautiful testimony of how the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, the way it is told, leads to Christians having courage Christians having a sense of confidence in a world that is falling apart. Because even though everything's falling apart, God is still in control. Okay. Uh, wasn't Luke writing this gospel shortly after Paul and Peter were both killed in Rome? And, and why would that be important? Well, because... Uh, it sheds light on why he's telling the story the way he's telling it in the in Acts and in the Gospel. Yeah, right. So there's a there's a unique telling of the story 
And um, for me, it's just wonderful that, that the, the early church, the earliest witnesses who are suffering for what they're proclaiming, they look back on the crucifixion and they're not just saying, Jesus died for my sins. They're looking back on the crucifixion and they're saying, in that crazy world, God was in control. And he now sends us out into such a world to be in control also. Okay, well, let's uh, close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together to meditate on your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would use your words um, to empower us to see that you are a God who has made promises that we can rely on, even though all of the things in our world seem to be fighting against you. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.